Amazing love, how can it be? Tonight we set our attention, our focus on the cross. And you know, a couple of things are true here. On the one hand, it's true. We set our attention to the cross. And, and, and this is our task every time we gather. You know, this isn't something that we do once a year on Good Friday or on occasional moments, but this is what the church does. We gather and we proclaim the cross centrally. You know, there's a reason that, that the, even the imagery of the cross is central to the way churches are laid out. I mean, each week as, as you sit in these benches and lean forward and hear from God's word, behind me here is this cross. As you walk forward to take the Lord's table each week, you're struck with this imagery of a cross. Why? Because this cross is central to everything we do. It's not something we do once in a while and then we, okay, let's get back to talking about the stuff I want to talk about. Okay, so central each week. We set our attention to the cross tonight. We'll do it again on Sunday. On the other hand, it's also true that Holy Week in general, and Good Friday in particular, leading up to this week, it, this is a special time for us to set our attention to the cross and really ground our hope together in the history of the events of the gospel. And so let's do that quickly. If you remember from this previous Palm Sunday, we looked at what we called the problem and the passion, part one. Tonight we, we pick it up with part two. So we noted together on Sunday at the end of chapter two of John's gospel account into chapter three, that unless we understand the central problem facing humanity, you know, the central problem that Jesus came to address, unless we understand the problem, we won't understand his passion. And what I mean, what I, what I mean by passion is these are the events of Holy Week leading up to the cross, leading up to Good Friday, what happens on Good Friday. You know, Nicodemus certainly didn't understand it. We, we meet here together tonight by night, and, and maybe that imagery can help us picture and see Nicodemus coming to meet by night with Jesus. Night actually being used here, not only to show the historical detail of when that, that meeting happened, but also to give us as readers a picture of what's happening in Nicodemus's heart and, and therefore a picture of the problem that we face, what's happening in our heart, that, that our own hearts are darker than we know apart from Christ, that this is, this is the problem that he came to address, the reality of our sin, something that's so easy to minimize, something that's easy for us to see in the brokenness of the world around us, but we, we don't often see it as a problem that we face and that leads to all kinds of confusion. So for Nicodemus, as well as the vast majority of first century Jews, we talked about this on, on Sunday, sin was not the central problem they believed the Messiah needed to address. As a result, they fundamentally misunderstood Jesus, completely confused what he came to do. And so they were confused related to the cross. We continue to be confused related to the cross to this day for the same reason. We're so confused about the nature of Good Friday because there are many who grew up even from within the church but who've now shifted their understanding of what transpired on Good Friday to, to refer to this idea that God the Father poured his wrath on the Son as mere cosmic child abuse. How could the Father do that to the Son? This is abusive. But to, 
This, this characterization of what transpired at the cross, cosmic child abuse, rather than how it's pictured in the scriptures, the fundamental expression of God's love for us, as John will tell us in chapter 3, as we'll see together on Sunday morning. That kind of confusion flows out of our fundamental misunderstanding of the problem. We miss what happened at the cross. We misunderstand what happened at the cross because we don't see the severity of what needed to take place in order to deal with our hearts. And when we misunderstand the problem, we misunderstand Christ's passion, the reality of what it is that Jesus came to accomplish for us. Nicodemus, along with the rest of us tonight, is in deep need to hear more about the cross. He's in deep need of Jesus' teaching on the cross in this set of verses, and that's exactly what we find. So here in John 3, 9 through 15, we find a theology of the cross from Christ himself. We know that the cross is in view here because, as we just read together, Jesus closes this section with these words. So must the Son of Man be lifted up. This is referring to what he would do in two years from this moment on Good Friday. So here we see four statements in this text tonight. Four statements about what Jesus accomplished on Good Friday and what it means for the believer. And really four statements about how we find the cross at the center of the Christian faith. Why, why that's so significant. Why that's so important. Right? So number one, statement number one, the cross of Christ is at the center of the scriptures. Jesus tells us here, the cross of Christ is at the center of the scriptures. So let me read verses 9 and 10. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? So Nicodemus is exasperated a little bit. Jesus has told him the nature of the problem. Okay, so the text gives us an idea of what the problem is. It's depravity. But Jesus also tells him that what's required of him, if he's going to understand the things of the kingdom of God, what's required of him is new birth. But then he tells him, you can't do anything to acquire new birth. Like, that doesn't come by your own efforts. It doesn't come by your strength. It doesn't come by something that you do. So Nicodemus ends this. It's like, it's not only that, but it's a work of the Spirit, right? And the Spirit can't be manipulated. He can't be controlled. You can see evidence of the Spirit but you can't control or manipulate the spirit for your own purposes. So Nicodemus is like, okay, so then, therefore, how can these things be? I think it's best translated. How can this happen? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. So there's, we talked about it on Sunday a little bit. We foreshadowed it. But there's this anticipation that Nicodemus, if he were able to rightly understand what the scriptures were actually saying, he should be able to see the cross of Christ, plainly, in the Old Testament. In other words, Nicodemus, listen, you want to know about new birth? And you want to know how new birth is granted to God's people, right? Because Nicodemus misunderstands new birth, and Jesus also shows, tells him that that's found in the Old Testament text. He alludes to Ezekiel 36, and he, he says, remember, born of the water and the spirits? You remember this imagery, Nicodemus, in the Old Testament? The purifying nature of, of what God has to come to do, making us pure, pouring out his spirit, giving us new hearts, giving us new life. So he wants to know about new birth, but he also wants to know how new birth is granted. And Jesus is saying, if you really understood what the Old Testament is just constantly pointing us to, 
you wouldn't be surprised by this. You wouldn't be exasperated. Every now and again, you'll hear offhanded comments about Christianity that makes it seem as though early Christians came along and just fabricated the idea of Jesus and his substitutionary death on the cross as um, whole, whole cloth fiction, you know. And yet, when one looks at the teaching of Jesus, teaching of the apostles, the authors of the, script, the New Testament text, along with the earliest Christians in Jerusalem, the vast majority of whom were Jewish, and you see what Jesus claimed about himself and then what Jesus did, what you come to find is a reality that's proclaimed centrally in the Old Testament, not a fabrication. It's not made up. In, in addition to that, there are those who would look at this and say, well, this idea that Jesus dies for us in, in substitution, that he takes our place at the cross, something that we're going to get into in just a little bit. That idea is kind of like, it's new, it's novel, it's this Western exaggeration in Christianity. But no, you know, when, again, when one looks at the teachings of Jesus and the apostles, the authors of the scripture, along with the earliest Christians in Jerusalem, the vast majority of whom were Jewish, when you see what Jesus claimed about himself and what he did, what do you find? It's a reality that's proclaimed centrally in the Old Testament. It's not an exaggeration. This is why Jesus says to Nicodemus, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? There are a few ways that when you open your Bibles, when you open your Old Testament, when you go home this week and, and look across the scriptures, there are a few ways that the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament offers this kind of forward pointing teaching about the cross. A few ways that you'll see it. One way is in the doctrinal themes that are present about who the Messiah is is that are obviously messianic texts pointing forward to, to this Messiah. We find them across the Psalms, in the prophets. Think here about so much of what we read in Zechariah when we were there for a few months. Zechariah writing about this coming shoot, this branch, this Messiah who would come. And on the one hand, like how does he describe the Messiah? Do you remember? He describes him on the one hand as a, as a coming king. A person, a human being, whom God sends to bring rescue and redemption and restoration to God's people. So he's, he's a coming king, and yet he's described in terms that the Old Testament reserves for Yahweh, for God himself, that would be blasphemous to apply to anyone else. And so there's this question of who, who is this? Not only that, but he describes him in terms that echo what Isaiah says when he describes him as a suffering servant. So let's think about that. Think about the words of Isaiah as he described this shoot in terms of a coming suffering servant. Here we actually find, I want you to think about this, we find quite a compelling description of the events of Good Friday hundreds of years before it happened in the writings of Isaiah. Surely he has borne our griefs. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shearers silent, so he opened not his mouth, and they made his grave with the wicked. And with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. We, we see the cross 
as central to the description of the Messiah in the Old Testament. But another way that we see this is in something, we've talked about it before, but it's called typology. The stories of the Old Testament, we've seen this even in John so far. You know, they aren't primarily about the prophets, priests, kings, lambs, sacrifices, manna, bronze serpents. You know, yes, these... These stories that we see, one of which we'll see Jesus pointing to here in the text, they all happened. They're not just metaphor. But these events were purposed by God to show us a glimpse of what Jesus would come to do as the true and better prophet, the true and better priest, the true and better king, the true and better sacrifice, the true and better lamb, the true and better manna, the true and better bronze serpent. More on that in a bit, but the point that Jesus makes here. The cross is not some plan B. Hear this tonight. The cross is not some plan B. It's not some impromptu or ad hoc attempt on the part of God to solve a problem that either he hadn't anticipated or he thought maybe he could fix with other means if we would just be more obedient. Rather, it flows out of an eternal decree that we see at the very outset of the Old Testament. The fall of mankind happens three chapters into the scriptures. And the Lord looks at Satan and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. There's this promised seed who's coming. And you'll bruise his heel. He will crush your head. And we see the crushing of Satan's head at the cross. So the first statement that Jesus makes tonight about the cross, the cross of Christ is at the center of the scriptures. It is not plan B. It's not God scrambling to try to figure something else out with what he's given. No, it's at the center of the scriptures. Number two, the cross of Christ is at the center of Jesus' self-revelation. It's at the center of Jesus' self-revelation. What I mean by that is it's centrally how Jesus described himself to others. It's how he revealed himself to others. Like when, when Jesus talked about who he was, centrally, primarily, he talks in terms of the cross. Let's look at verses 11 through 13. And we're going to come back to some of these verses more than once. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So if you remember from last week, Nicodemus started the conversation with kind of a royal we in the text. He says, Rabbi, we know. Boy, we know. We know that you're a teacher come from God. He, he, he begins by setting himself as judge over the matter, claiming a knowledge that he doesn't have, rather than in humility recognizing he doesn't have it right. He was attempting to speak on behalf of the other Pharisees as one who is an accomplished teacher. And now, right after reminding Nicodemus that if he was so accomplished as a teacher, he should already know. You know, in love, Jesus is reminding him of this. He's reminding all of, this, uh, of us of this in love, you know. But as he's reminding him, if he was really a teacher, he should already know what the Messiah comes to do. Jesus now pokes some fun in love at Nicodemus by also using we and essentially saying in verse 11, uh, we know some things too, Nicodemus. And at the center of Jesus' point is the reason, okay guys, this is the reason that Nicodemus is struggling to accept what Jesus is telling him. Because he's not accepting Jesus as Jesus is revealing himself. He's not accepting the Messiah as the Messiah is disclosing himself. Nicodemus wants a Messiah in his own image. 
the image of a Pharisee, the image of one who believes he can save himself through works of the law. He's struggling to receive a Messiah as the Messiah is talking about himself. And we've, we've, so we've talked about this before at great length at GLC, but we repeatedly need to be aware of our own tendency related to this. It's so easy for us to do exactly what Nicodemus is doing here. There are a lot of Jesuses out there, you know. A Mormon Jesus, Jehovah's Witness Jesus, a health and wealth wants to give you material blessings Jesus. A progressive Jesus who defines love very loosely and for whom love never means saying things to us that we would ever disagree with. A politically powerful Jesus who advocates for a particular set of rights and preferences primarily rather than the cross. You know, we use Jesus to justify certain actions that he would never stand for. In fact, he stands for the opposite. We use Jesus to justify beliefs that he himself in the scriptures fundamentally opposes. And we do it because, like Nicodemus, we do not accept Jesus as he reveals himself, as he discloses himself, his self-revelation. How, how does he reveal himself? How does he disclose himself? As a Messiah who came to die on behalf of his people so that they might live. As a Messiah who came to die on behalf of his people that they might look, look to the cross and live that they also might call upon all of those who haven't looked upon it yet, that they might look to the cross and live. Let's get to the nature of the problem that needs to be solved and get to the nature, therefore, of what Jesus came to do, that we might have life. If we are to receive Jesus as he reveals himself to us, we have, we have to receive the hard reality, what I think a lot of times for us feels like a hard reality, that the reason he was born was to die. The reason for Christmas was the cross. The reason he came was to die in our place. This is reinforced in verses 12 and 13. The earthly things that Jesus is talking about here, it's the reality of new birth here and now. You know, that's the earthly thing. We can have new life here and now on earth. God's presence with us because of the work of the cross in history. Also done here on earth on Good Friday. The heavenly things are the things yet to come, the age to come, the age by which we can enter into because of what Jesus did in history. You know, when I say the cross is central, the centrality of the cross, we're not talking about the piece of wood, you understand. You know? We're not talking about this, this wooden beam that has some kind of magical power. No, like, when we talk about the cross, we simply mean the completed work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, Christ himself. Christ himself is as substitute. Christ himself, what he came to do for us on our behalf, the death of Christ on our behalf. The reason the cross is powerful, as verse 13 makes clear, is because of who Jesus is. He descended that he might bear the load of sin upon himself. It's all bound up with who he is, with how he discloses himself, with how he reveals himself to us. He's the one uniquely qualified to save. So the cross of Christ, the center of the scriptures, it's at the center of the scriptures, cross of Christ, is at the center of Jesus' self-revelation, how he, how he discloses himself to us. Number three, the cross of Christ is at the center of what Jesus came to accomplish. Verses 13 and 14. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. 
Right, so there's the centerpiece of our text for Good Friday. The cross of Christ is the center of his self-disclosing, at the center of his self-disclosing, his self-revelation. He talks about the cross bound up in who he is. It's at the center of, therefore, what he came to accomplish. Again, because of who Jesus is, he was able to bear our sin. Look at the progression of the words here that, John, that Jesus speaks. He descended in order to be lifted up. He came down to be lifted up. It reminds me of that great quote from Lewis that we talk about every Advent in which we say the incarnation is him stooping, stooping, stooping even lower until then he comes up again with the whole whole world on his shoulders. That's what this text is describing. He came down to go up again, but the way he goes up, like that's his purpose. Comes down to go up, but the way he goes up, the way he's lifted up is in death on a cross. And to make his point, Jesus points back to the Old Testament story. You can find it later if you'd like to read it. Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9 in particular. But the short version is that the sin of the people of Israel, their open rebellion against God, their dethroning of him, their grumbling, their persistent rebellion brought about judgment in the form of these poisonous serpents. And people were being bitten. They were perishing. So God instructs Moses to fashion a bronze serpent and lift it up, lift it up on a pole as a means that God would use to give new life to the children of Israel. If they were bitten, they could look upon the bronze snake and live. Be granted new life by God's grace. And to go back just for a second on this first point, the cross of Christ is at the center of the scriptures. Here we find this perfect example of what Jesus means when he's in You know, Luke 24, and he's on the road to Emmaus, and he tells Cleopas and his companion, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, so uh, Luke says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, Jesus is saying here, like, did you really think that was just about some bronze serpent? You know, that that was somehow powerful? We have this tendency to worship the object, this object, rather than God's mercies through it. This is why it had to be destroyed. The bronze serpent eventually is destroyed because people were worshiping that rather than seeing it as a means of God's grace. Jesus says, you really think it's about the bronze snake like, like Israel did? Didn't you see and understand that God was pointing to something much greater that was yet to come? I'm the bronze serpent lifted up that those who look upon me might have life. This term lifted up has a double meaning. On the one hand, it means physically lifted up in the same way that the bronze serpent was lifted up, that that Jesus was nailed to the cross, physically lifted up in death, but also lifted up means exalted. Jesus at the cross is lifted up as the willing and loving sacrifice for sin. So he's lifted up as the sacrifice, but in doing this, he's lifted up in exaltation as the one who reconciles all of humanity to God himself. The cross of Christ is at the center of what he came to accomplish. But that leads us finally, so noting the progression, the cross of Christ is at the center of our new life with God. How do we find life with God? How can it be? How can these things be? How can it happen? Like if I, if I'm, my problem is depravity. It's Nicodemus is the example, but we're also the example of this problem. Our problem is depravity. The answer is new birth, but we can't do something to achieve it. Like, we can't do it by our own works. Then how? The cross of Christ is at the center of our new life, our new birth. Verses 14 and 15, again, so as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him 
may have eternal life. Here we see a clear statement of purpose from Jesus. So can we, can we just work through the, the argument? The progression? The reason he descended. So he descended, right? He was at home with God. And yet he came down. He, he put on flesh. The reason he descended was to be lifted up. In death. The reason he was lifted up was that we might look to the cross. And the reason we might look to the cross is that we might have life in him. This word eternal life actually means resurrected life. Resurrected life. Life in the age to come. Yeah, and and it is. It is life in the age to come. But it also is expressing life right now, moving from spiritual death in sin to life in Jesus Christ. But it's actually life that goes on for all eternity. Life that will very much be present at the end of time. Even after our eyes close in death, we will continue to be alive in him. Because Jesus came to be lifted up. That we might look to the cross and live. And and you know, by pointing to these words, in him, Jesus is, is essentially telling us, do you want to see how I'm the truer and better bronze serpent? Carson's really helpful. Okay, these two words, he says, these two words, in him, put Jesus in quite a different category from the bronze snake. Every reader of the Old Testament knew that eventually the snake had to be destroyed by King Hezekiah because too many people treated it as if it had some kind of inherent magical power. What spared the Israelites from the mortal threat of the desert snake was God's grace. The means was the bronze snake. But we must say more than that about Jesus. The Father has granted the Son to have life in himself. He is himself the resurrection and the life. And those who believe in him have life in him. Here then is the frankest answer to Nicodemus' question. How can this happen? The kingdom is seen or entered. New birth is experienced. And eternal life begins through the saving cross work of Christ. The frankest answer to Nicodemus' question. How can this happen? The kingdom is seen or entered. New birth is experienced. Eternal life begins through the saving cross work of Christ. And so on Good Friday, Jesus dies on the cross, is buried in the tomb. He bears God's wrath in history. He physically bears God's wrath. He experiences the death that all of us deserved, that we might have resurrection life in him. But let's reflect for a minute, on the reality of what the disciples are thinking on this Good Friday. How can resurrection life come out of one man's death? And the answer, for the answer to that question, we wait for Sunday. We wait for Sunday together. But we wait as those invited to look to the cross and live. So let's look to the cross and live. If you've never trusted Christ in your whole life, And yet feel the great weight of your sin and brokenness that separates you from God. Look to the cross and live. Look to the cross and find life. There is forgiveness in life in Jesus. It's it's rooted in his love. Come back on Sunday. Hear more about this. Look to the cross and live. If you can't remember a time in your life when you didn't believe. You were raised in a Christian house and you can't remember a time when you didn't believe. But you still come in tonight with these areas of sin that need to be put to death. Or you come in with a heavy weight on your shoulders. Look to the cross and remember your life in him by grace. We look to the cross together every time we come for this very reason. And we look to the cross together here at the table.
Tonight we come and we're reminded of the centrality of the cross for us. Every sermon leads us into Christ's body broken and his blood shed that we might have life. And so I invite you forward. If you're, a, if you're a believer in Jesus, this meal is for you. This is how we proclaim the gospel. One of the ways, one of the means that we proclaim this good news to one another, to remind one another of Christ's death for us. If you're not a believer, don't take it. Uh, you can walk forward, observe, don't participate in that way. No pressure. Walk around um, and, 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 and ask questions. But, but we implore you, look to the cross and live tonight. Come forward and, and take of these elements and bring them back to your seats.